Hello, everybody, and welcome to another thrilling, exciting episode of JavaScript Jabber. I am Steve Edwards, the host with the face for radio and the voice for being a mime, but I'm still your host. Now with me, our normal host is here today, Chuck Wood. What's up, Chuck? I have a little bit of a sore throat thing going on, so <laughs> not talking a lot. Yes, I'm covering for Chuck today while uh, he is feeling under the weather, but we got to give him kudos for being here today and showing up and doing the job. So we appreciate Chuck. So with that today, we will introduce our special guest. Uh, his name is Lane Wagner. How you doing, Lane? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood. I've been talking to a whole bunch of people that want to update their resume and find a better job. And I figure, well, why not just share my resume? So you, if you go to topendevs.com slash resume, enter your name and email address, then you'll get a copy of the resume that I use, that I've used through freelancing, through m most of my career, as I've kind of refined it and tweaked it to get me the jobs that I want. Uh, like I said, topendevs.com slash resume will get you that. And uh, you can just kind of use the formatting. It comes in Word and Pages formats, and you can just fill it in from there. So Lane is here. And before I forget, also, I was, sometimes I forget to introduce them, but I'd also like to say hi to our studio audience. So how you doing, everybody? Okay, great. Yeah, they're always there in the background and uh, I always like to give them kudos. So anyway, Lane comes to us courtesy of our own AJ O'Neill. And he knows AJ. We haven't determined if that's good or bad yet, but uh, we shall see. <laughs> So uh, before we get started, Lane, why don't you give us a little intro, tell us about yourself, why you're famous, what you do, who you do it for, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, super famous. Uh, so I'm the founder of, of a new startup called Boot.dev. We teach backend development online in Go, Python, and JavaScript. It's kind of a zero to 60 you know, backend development career path. Who I do it for? At the moment, I do it for me. Hopefully that ends up working out. I've been full-time on the project for about two months now. Uh, it's been a side project for about two years. So it's been a lot of fun. Okay, so we are here to talk functional programming and what is and what is not and whether things are functional or whether they're not. AJ and Lane had talked about this topic a little bit. And so we'll just let Lane give the intro where this came from and where we want to go. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of a high-level overview of the discussion. So AJ and I were at lunch a few weeks ago. And as we all probably know, React and Vue have made big changes over the last couple of years. React introduced the new Hooks API, Vue with Vue 3 released the new Composition API. And I now I've been reviewing like the claims made by the React and Vue teams. And I don't actually think that I have any bones to pick with the claims made by the teams themselves. But that said, the, the discussion from the community surrounding Hooks and Composition API have been that they are... They, they enable functional programming, that they are more functional than the old class-based kind of way of doing things. And I do take issue with that. I, I don't think that that's true. And I've been in this headspace recently because I, I very recently wrote object-oriented programming and functional programming courses. And the first controversial thing I have to say is I don't think functional and object-oriented paradigms are actually in conflict very much, even though you don't see things like classes and objects in like purely functional languages. But we can dive into the specifics of maybe why Vue 3 and React Hooks, and it might be easier just to take the example of, of Vue 3 or React Hooks, I don't know, whichever one we prefer, and start diving into details of why 
why they're not functional in the first place. Okay, well, before we go down that road, let's define yeah. terms for a minute. I think anybody who's been into programming will know object-oriented programming. Functional programming, I don't think people know as well. So let's start out with defining terms, what we mean by those two, those two terms. Cool. I'll give my definitions. <laughs> Hopefully they align with your guys' definitions. So when I think about functional programming, kind of the most important thing like if we think about like Haskell, for example, a very a purely functional language, then the most important thing is this concept of pure functions. So functions where the inputs and the outputs are deterministic, right? If I, if I put the same inputs into my function, I should expect to get the same outputs. I shouldn't be mutating global state. Ideally, I kind of have taken all of my IO, these like pesky real world details and like shoved them in some corner. And, and the rest of my program can be can be purely functional. So that, that's kind of what I think about when I think about functional programming. Yeah, I was going to say a lot of the, like Elm, for example, on the mm-hmm. web, uh, people go out and they tout how it's functional. It's purely functional. The whole thing's purely functional. And it's like, no, it relies on side effects because it's on the web, right? Yeah. But yeah, they shunt it off into, you know, this corner. And so you you have to be deliberate about your side effects. doesn't mean they're not there. It just means that we recognize that we need them and so we are going to give you a mechanism to have them, but we're going to restrain them so that the rest of the code can be purely functional. Yeah, I mean, purely functional apps would be really, really boring. They wouldn't be able to do much cool stuff because you wouldn't be allowed to do things like persist to disk or Lots of know, recursion. Make network calls. Yeah, and the code would be, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. This is debatable, but, but no iteration makes code hard to read. Says Lane. Okay, so then how do we define object-oriented programming? So the way I think about object-oriented programming, um, there's kind of four pillars or like four main topics. The first is encapsulation. So you want like your classes and your functions and things to be like black boxes, right? Good principles of encapsulation. You're writing good APIs. Second principle that's very tightly coupled to encapsulation is abstraction, right? Are you abstracting at the right level um, in your code? The third thing is inheritance. It's my least favorite part of object-oriented programming, being a Go developer and not a game developer. I, I tend to have, I seem to have fewer use cases for inheritance. But then polymorphism, also super, super important. The idea that you can write, for example, an interface that many different types implement. Kind of the idea of duck typing in certain languages falls nicely into the category of polymorphism. So when I think of object-oriented programming, I think of uh, like, am I practicing good rules of encapsulation and polymorphism and abstraction, things like that. It's funny that you reacted to inheritance the way you did, because what I find is that the more experienced a developer seems to get in a an object-oriented language like Java or Ruby, the, the more they kind of reach for constructing objects instead of inheriting them, just because they're yeah. more predictable. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's about it is about predictability. I ha- I have a hard time like I think that inheritance is appropriate and there's certain domains where it makes a ton of sense like building games and having for example you've got like a unit type and then maybe you have a, a soldier that inherits from a unit and then you've got like an archer that inherits from a soldier like th- th- I feel like there are definitely domains where it makes a lot of sense. Being a web developer, I've I've actually just like never had like a real use case for inheritance, like literals and structs and things like this seem to just make so much more sense when I'm trying to just, you know, get data from a database and back to the UI. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so what is it that you see? Obviously, there's some things about OO that you don't like. And, you know, the object-oriented versus functional debate has been raging for a long time, years 
But it's probably one of those things, you know, like anything else in web development where you see pendulum swings, you mm-hmm. know, whether it's the stacks you use to in you know, the tools you use, decoupled, monolith. Here we've got, you know, object oriented was all the rage for a long time. And then we're the functional and that debate's always going to rage. So it sounds you prefer functional over object oriented. Is that what you're saying? Is that your take or is that it, each one has its appropriate use cases? And that in some cases, maybe object oriented, like you mentioned in games is better, whereas maybe other times functional is, is more appropriate. So this is like, I guess my first controversial take is that I actually don't think that they're really at odds with each other. I think that good developers, good engineers can take kind of the best parts of each and that those best parts don't really conflict too much. So as an example, Go, the language I I do most of my work in, doesn't have objects or classes, but it does a pretty good job, especially now that generics have been implemented, of supporting these other three pillars of object-oriented programming. Like the fact that I can encapsulate things nicely within a package and behind an API, that I can get good levels of abstraction through that encapsulation. And then that, you know, through interfaces and generics, I can have kind of polymorphic reusable code. Like really the only thing missing is inheritance, which again, I would argue is like, that's not, all of object-oriented programming, it's it's maybe a shame that object is in the title of object-oriented programming. But if you look at like those four principles that you learn like in OOP class, only one of them really has to do with like the concept of classes. So if you if you kind of just ignore inheritance for a second, like those three concepts are not at all in conflict with the idea of like pure functions and immutable state, which is really, I would argue, the kind of the big important idea from functional programming. The only thing about object-oriented programming that fights with with pure functions is the idea of like mutating an existing object. If you were to say, define a function that takes an object as input, does a change and returns a new object, like, great, now you're back to following kind of the rules of functional programming. Wow, I segued right into that, into that one. That was good. And I didn't even <laughs> plan that. <laughs> Okay, so now I guess the point that we discussed at the top of the, of the episode that we wanted to get into was Vue 3 and React hooks. Yeah, and let's start the React bashing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so what you're saying is they claim to be functional, but to your eyes, they're not really as functional as they claim to be. Is that correct? I actually don't think they're claiming that it's functional. I think the community is. So I, I don't want to like put words in like the React team's mouth. But yeah, I think there's been a big misunderstanding that especially like newer developers that are learning hooks for the whole time and or for the first time and are learning that the the old class-based way of doing things is like evil. Um, It's the old way. I think there's part of that kind of sales pitch that's wrong, which is that hooks are functional. And if we want to jump right into an example, like use state is the best example of this. So you've got with React hooks, the idea is your component is a is a big function, right? And every time the page renders, this this function reruns. Like the core tenant of functional programming is that when you have a function, it has inputs and outputs. And for the same inputs, you always get the same output. But the use state hook in React is a function that returns two things. It returns the value of the state that you care about. So say you have like some input on the screen, so like a username input. So you've got the username value, and then you also get back from this use state function a set username function. And every time the component runs, the the values you get back are different. That setter is the same, but the 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 value for username changes as the user is typing. So it's like the least functional thing I can think about. <laughs> like I actually can't come up with like something that's less functional than React hooks at their very core. So when they came out with React hooks, I was 
frequently on the React Roundup podcast. And it's it's funny to me still because I, I really haven't written, written that much React. I've written React Native a bunch, but not React itself. But when it came out, they, yeah, I mean, effectively what changed was that keyword, right? Because your your stuff all lived in classes. Your components were classes. And now they're just not really structured that way. In fact, I think the keyword now that you wind up seeing is function. And so, especially for the hooks. And so I think people just kind of assume the mental model without, you know, understanding all of the implications of it. And so, yeah, I think it, I think you could make the case that it's possibly more functional. It it definitely allows you to decouple a lot of the work that was kind of encapsulated in that class. But I mean, beyond that, I mean, React is all about the side effects because it's all about the UI. And so I, I don't see how it could become move much more in the direction of being functional without causing you some major headaches getting done what you want to get done. To be clear, I think React hooks are better than the old class API. I just think that a lot of the discussion around React hooks oh, that's is for sure wrong. That, that's, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's definitely easy to re- easier to reason about. But my point is, is that if they had made it, you know, if they adopted too many more of the functional programming ideas and tried to sit them on top of React, React's a UI library and it just wouldn't work. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I completely agree. The bone to pick I have is is with how we talk about it. I don't think that, uh, you know, React hooks is, is a bad way of doing it. I do have, like, my complaints with React and with Vue and the way they've done things uh, is, is more one around fragmentation than, like, how the changes were implemented. Because now it feels like we have two giant ways of doing things, which if you're, like, a Zen of Python fan, like I am, I'm a big fan of, like, kind of having one way to do things. There should be one good way to do things. It, it kind of sucks when we start having more and more good ways to approach the same problem. Okay, so then the other framework that you mentioned was my tool of choice, Vue and view three. Um, now, is this the case, a similar case where it's not so much that the team said it's functional, but the community seems to be pushing it as functional programming? Or what's the, where's the discrepancy lie with view three? As far as I can tell, it seems to be the same idea. And I think Charles is right. Like, at, at the end of the day, React hooks and view composition API are functions. <laughs> like, they are functions. The keyword is function. And so if that's the definition of functional that we're using, then yes, they definitely are more functional, right? I think the problem arises when people coming from like a, which programming paradigm are we talking about? That's that's when it gets a little more confusing. So with Vue, it's a very, very similar situation with the composition API. Basically, we've moved away from this class-based way of defining components. Um, we're doing it within a function. That composition function, it's, called, it's the setup function. It's a little different than the React one. It doesn't like run it's not like the whole function runs every time the render happens. To be honest, I'm actually a little less, more fuzzy on exactly how often it runs and like the way you can define things in there it doesn't necessarily have to be in order. But again, the problem is the same. It's not a pure function. Like the setup function doesn't, like the arguments it takes are props. It returns things for the template. But every time it runs, theoretically, the, you know, the state's different. Yeah, I think, I think composition API is actually a better way of putting it. And I kind of wish that React had named React hooks, something like React composition hooks. Because, yeah, when we're talking about the paradigm, the paradigm shift was the way that you compose these these systems, right? And it works through composition, right? The reality is, is it's easier to reason about what's going on and it's easier to reason about what's triggering the hooks. But at the end of the day, I mean, that's all you're doing is you're just composing a set of hooks based on what's going on in the app. And so it doesn't have to do everything. It doesn't have to do all the work. 
and it's not encapsulated in classes, which people don't reason well about in JavaScript anyway. And so anyway, that that's the that's the advantage I'm seeing. So I, I think Vue aptly named what they were doing when they moved to Composition API because it, it really does reflect that, hey, we've got these pieces that we're going to stick together in these meaningful ways, and we're going to make them evented so that it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I just went back and watched the uh, kind of the React Hooks announcement talk uh, at React Conf. I think it was 2018. And like the main value propositions, there, was, there were three main value propositions for Hooks. Yeah, one was composability, which I mean, I would argue is the biggest one. The fact that like now you don't have to shove everything within lifecycle hooks at the top level. You can like make as many lifecycle hooks as you want. That's like number one. Number two is like reusable state, which I I like that you're able to do it now. Although some of the like nastiest code I've ever seen is like hook, like <laughs> giant React hooks that are getting like re- custom React hooks that are getting reused across components. But we, I don't think we can blame the library too much for just our bad application code. And then the third thing was just that classes, like the claim was classes are confusing humans. Like the way this works in JavaScript is frankly confusing. So I don't really have any issue with those three like main value propositions of, of hooks and, and the composition API. Yeah, so, right, the, think- the other the other issue you brought up was having both ways of doing things right. I don't, I'm not necessarily opposed to having more than one, one way of doing things if one better expresses certain kinds of code and the other better expresses the other kinds of code. If the two diverge, yeah, nobody uses class components anymore. (laughs) But my point is, is that for backward compatibility, while I'm upgrading, I can see them maintaining it. But yeah, if the two diverge in capability or something between, between versions, that that's where you're going to have the problem, right? Where you can do something with the, the functions API that you can't do with the classes API. Yeah, that's my big concern. So if you go look, I mean, the last time I went and checked, both Vue and React are taking the same approach of we are never deprecating classes and we're going to support both indefinitely. I mean, I like, I love the idea of backwards compatibility. I almost wonder if this should have just been a new framework. <laughs> like you don't even call it React anymore. It's just something new that if you want to, because yeah, the idea Angular. of going into, yeah. Angular 2, right? <laughs> anyway. No, yeah, it's 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 a huge problem. But the idea of like going forward, every library supports both APIs. It just seems like, I don't know, it just seems like a huge maintenance burden to me. Yeah, unless you can stack one on top of the other, right? So the class API is just a thin veneer over the top of the functional API. Anyway. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, not that uh, maintaining the library itself is my problem. <laughs> My problem right. is figuring out how to use things uh, in effective ways, for sure. So in what ways, then, are you finding that functional is being talked about that is a misnomer for the way that you actually compose apps, right? Because we've kind of talked our way around, hey, this is composition, not functional. But how are people talking about it in terms of functional programming that's incorrect, or at least is going to lead people down the wrong path? I think this is a bigger problem kind of in the entry-level developer space, which is one that I'm like very familiar with, you know, running boot dev. I, I work with a lot of people that are kind of working towards their first job. And uh, I don't think this is a problem at like the more experienced JavaScript la- like levels. I don't think when you talk to senior developers that there's any confusion about whether or not React hooks or the Composition API have like Haskell-like properties in terms of like, you know, being more kind of purely functional. But I do think to newer developers, it can be really confusing. And again, maybe it's just a problem of terminology. Like maybe 
maybe functional programming is a bad word, is a bad term for this paradigm we talk about when we're talking about purely functional programming. Kind of like how I think maybe object-oriented programming isn't the best word to encapsulate all four of those things that are really important, right? Encapsulation, abstraction, polymorphism. So I guess to answer your question more directly, I see it with newer developers learning that because functions are what's used in hooks, this must be what functional programming is. And I think that's that's potentially a big problem when you later in your career encounter the actual, like, the, I guess the older definition, I don't know, the more traditional definition of uh, functional programming. I feel like I'm hogging the mic. Steve, did you want to jump in? No, I guess I just want to go back and clarify the question uh, that's come to my mind when we were, you know, when we first started discussing this is, and I think you might have already addressed it, is, is this a problem and why? That somebody's saying it's functional and it's really not. You know, it's, it's like, I feel like I'm a kid in grade school sometimes, you know, when hearing some of the arguments that go on in the coding world. You said this, but it's not true. Well, Okay, sorry. So if I understood you correctly, you see that the misnomer as being a problem more for somebody who's learning to code versus somebody who's more experienced and actually knows what's going on. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it could be confusing to newer developers. And to be clear, yeah, like really my only problem when it comes to this this functional thing is how we talk about it. I have some other problems, like we, we mentioned, like fragmentation, but but really when it when it comes to like what React hooks are, what Vue is, and how it relates to functional programming, I feel like we have a problem of terms that's super confusing to newer devs um, that are learning React or Vue for the first time. Yeah, I can see that with hooks. And I remember when the term hooks first came out, it seemed to be, and not being a React dev myself, but listening to other people talk about it, it's what React is defining as hooks seems to be a misnomer as compared to what hooks really are. I lived in the Drupal world for a long time, as I've mentioned, and in PHP land, and hooks were huge in terms of how modules were built and how interactivity between modules, what in WordPress you would call plugins, whatever uh, compartmentalization term you want to use. And so a hook was basically, okay, I'm coming to my point in the code. I want to create an opportunity for any other program, any other module, any other piece of code to interact with my code. So I'm going to put it out and say, okay, anybody that implements this function, call that function. And then maybe they just do something or they pass back some data or whatever. But the term was that they're hooking into the process. But yet the way React defined what they called hooks really wasn't hooks in that meaning of the term. Is that correct? Again, I'm not a reactive, so I'm not familiar with how how they really work. But I'd heard that said by other people that more familiar with it, that yeah, it's they're called hooks, but they're not really hooks in the classic definition of the term. So like, and now you'll have to answer my question because I'm not as familiar with WordPress. You're kind of describing like life cycle hooks. Is that correct? Kind of like when X happens, here's a callback and I'm going to do this thing, kind of like like the view lifecycle methods or the React lifecycle methods? Yeah, sort of. The ones that you're talking about are the lifecycle of a component, right? When it gets mm-hmm. created, when it gets mounted, uh, before destroy, after destroy, that kind of stuff, and the lifecycle of a component. A hook, to me, could be at any point in the code process, maybe not in the mount or unmount, but anytime some code is running. And that's what, you know, think about as like, plugins, for lack of a better term. You know, I think when Drupal went, when Drupal went to Symfony in version 8, that's plugins was the way to hook into a process. It's basically saying, hey, I'm at this point in my code. Do you want to do something here? Great. Let's go ahead and do it. So yeah, it's basically lifecycle hooks, but just in more than just the lifecycle of a component. So yeah, anyway. I tend to agree with you. I like the, the naming is a bit confusing. I, I, it's a good thing I went back and watched that talk from ReactConf because when, when I think it was Dan Abramov was introducing hooks, 
the, the reason that he gave for the naming of Hook was because before React Hooks came out, you could write functional components in React. They were just like really silly and kind of useless uh, because they couldn't do anything with internal state. So you could write essentially pure and maybe, I guess this is kind of ironic. You could write like pure functional components before hooks came out. You could write a component that just took props and deterministically rendered something on the screen, which is a, is a very, you know, purely functional thing to do. What React hooks enabled was for you to not do functional things. Uh, it was, it's a way to hook into the state, right? So the, re- the reason he used the term hook was like, okay, now with the use state hook, we can hook into the internal state management of React and do that within kind of a functional. I think that's where the term hook came from. But yeah, like that's to me, it's non obvious. I wouldn't have known that without reading, watching that talk. So it is hooks, but not in the classic sense of the term, I guess. So, but React being the big dog has sort of said, okay, we're going to use hooks, whether it's a hook or not. Now that's what everybody thinks of when they think of the term hook, at least in, in terms of React or in terms of JavaScript. Yeah, it seems that way. And and I mean, it's it's kind of funny that we're having this discussion and like you brought up the fact that like, well, wait, what's the big problem here? Well, I, I guess at a certain level, it is one of naming, but like what other problems are there in programming? Like naming things is like the hardest part of programming. Well, uh, no, remember the two, <laughs> the two hardest things in, I always use this adage because it's so true. The two hardest things in programming are cache invalidation, naming things and off by one errors. So, right. <laughs> you know, so yes, naming... Naming is very important. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So uh, that that to me is like the ultimate irony. The fact that we had functional React components, albeit they were very useless. And I guess this comes back to like the whole functional programming discussion of like, well, is functional programming even useful? Like we do have to manage state at a certain level. And and Elm is, is a great example. Like Elm is really trying, like they're doing their darndest to be a functional framework for like front-end UI development because the UI, they're treating... They've like taken all the the you know nasty bits about about front end development things like asynchronous kind of network calls and and they've put that all in the corner and they've said okay you can like do this data fetching stuff but every time you get new state we're going to have a pure function that takes the entire internal state from your app and renders something deterministically to the screen so again I'm not I don't use Elm I've like messed with it and read about it and I think it's interesting but like it is much closer to what UI, functional UI programming would look like, in my opinion, uh, than what we've what we've got with React Hooks and the Composition API. Yeah, one of my uh, former co-panelists on Views on View, Lindsay, has left View and is living in the Elm world and has talked about how it's, as I understand, it's functional, you know, using the functional paradigm for programming. Again, I haven't, haven't had a chance to delve into Elm. I guess you could say I haven't been barking up that, uh, that tree. But... Uh, yeah, that's my. If you did, it would be a nightmare on Elm Street. Yes, it would. <laughs> Thank you, Chuck. You're so, welcome. Anyway, you like the dad jokes. <laughs> hey there, this is Charles Maxwood. I'm excited because I wanted to let you know about this thing that I pulled together that I had just I've been dying to have this for years, and I never felt like I could. And then I just realized that there's no reason why I can't. So um, I'm putting together a book club and we're going to read development focused books, career books, you know, uh, technical books, whatever. The first book that we're going to do is going to be Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob Martin. If you're not familiar with Clean Code or some of the other stuff that Bob has done, check that out. I've also talked to him on the Clean Coders podcast, which is on Top End Devs. But uh, yeah, we're going to get on. He's going to show up to some of our meetings. And what I'm thinking is we'll probably have like five or six people. Uh, part of the conversation along with Bob and I at the same time. 
and we'll just uh, so somebody can come on, they can ask their question, and then we'll just ro- rotate people through. So we'll we'll mute one person, unmute another person when it's their turn to come on and, and be part of the discussion. So we'll do that for like an hour, hour and a half. And then the other part of it that I'm putting together is just kind of a meet and greet gather area on Gather Town. And so after the the meetup and the call, what we'll do is we'll all go over to Gather Town and you can just log in, walk up to a group and have a conversation. And that way we can all kind of get to know each other and and make friends and, and get to know people across the world. Uh, one thing that I'm finding is that, yeah, the meetups are starting to come back, but a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to a meetup. And I really want to meet you guys and talk to you. So we're going to put all that together. It'll all be part of that book club. You can go to topendevs.com slash book club to be part of it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. The first book club meeting will be in December, the beginning of December. We're starting the first week of December. And um, you'll also be part of the conversation about which book we do next. I have one in mind, but I want to see where everybody's at. So there you go. So we've been talking about Vue and React and functional programming, but we also mentioned earlier, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that your current thing is is boot.dev. And I believe you mentioned to us offline that it was actually written in Vue. Yeah. So I'd be curious to hear about boot.dev, both in terms of what you're teaching and what tools you're using to teach and also the tools that you use to build boot.dev. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So you. Uh. <laughs> uh, great question. I picked Vue actually because I wanted to learn Vue. Um, I'm going to disconnect Chuck right now. I'm kidding. <laughs> it, 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 I'm just kidding. <laughs> Wait, are you a are you a React fan? I have to know what your Vue alternative is. Stimulus. Oh no, I've never heard of stimulus. <laughs> Hotwire stimulus. Anyway, what? Okay, Correct me enough. if I'm wrong, but didn't didn't Alpine come from stimulus? Was that right, or am I remembering Maybe. things wrong? Stimulus was written by uh, DHH, the guy who wrote oh, Rails. Oh, okay. Rails, yeah. And oh, that's right. You're in the Rails world. Okay. It's it's more along the lines of like, I don't want to say jQuery, but it, the ideas are, it's super simple and you just, you kind of sprinkle your JavaScript in where you need it. So you don't, you're not, you're not writing your UI in it. So you right. write yeah, that sounds HTML like- and then you, you, uh, you wire up your controllers to an element in in the HTML, and then it will work off of the HTML from there. And so then you just write JavaScript functions that are triggered by events, and that's it. And just Right, that's very much the box. Alpine paradigm, yeah. uh, for sure. We've actually had him on JavaScript Jabber last year. Uh, yep. And Petite View is trying to address that type of thing, too. And yeah, that's a whole different road we can go down. But yeah. anyway, anyway. He's, he, he's stimulus lane. So... <laughs> okay, well, for my next project, I'll be working in stimulus. But I, I did uh, start in Vue 2, mostly to learn Vue. There was there were some things that looked pretty cool. I really liked the idea of single file components, to be honest. I think that was the uh, that was the main draw for me. So anyways, started in Vue 2. We made the upgrade to Vue 3 probably early, but I'm a big fan of staying up to date on things. Uh, so I kind of push the envelope of, of when we update. But Boot Dev is an interactive coding platform. So you like, you know, write... Python and JavaScript and Go in the browser. So it needs to be very interactive. So like a static site generator wasn't going to work. I needed something that could do a lot of JavaScript, do a lot of interactivity. So that's why I chose Vue 3. My experience, or or Vue and then Vue 3, my experience with Vue has been fine. Like I I don't, I haven't really run into many problems with it. The migration was painfully annoying. Like slowed down the business to, uh, you know, do an upgrade that, albeit I like the code better now, it's, it just wasn't, 
that big of a deal to me. But yeah, so so boot dev, let, let's talk about that. Uh, Actually, real quick, I thought, you know, yeah. it's an interesting point where you talk about migration. And the app that I work on a daily basis is huge in terms of hundreds of components and so on. And that's been one of the sticking points, you know, is the migration. But I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but when Vue 2.7 came out a couple months ago, two or three months ago, I believe, it was a backport of a lot of the Vue 3 stuff into Vue 2. Mm, yeah. A lot of composition API functionality. That's not everything, but if you look at the release notes, it's basically a backport. And so I think the point of that is to make migration easier because you can implement stuff in Vue, you know, 2.7. And then when you go to Vue 3, you don't have quite the large leap into that, the whole that's composition That's way better API. than I've seen other, I've seen other frameworks that do. That sounds amazing. Yeah. 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 So anyway, I just thought I'd make yeah. that point. Yeah, I've seen some frameworks no, take that approach, but Angular, when they transitioned, they set it up so you could sideload Angular JS alongside Angular 2 or vice versa. And so you would then, as you upgraded your components, it would just run on the other engine. But the problem is you were effectively maintaining one code base that felt a whole lot like a schizophrenic two code base system. So Yeah, that sounds that sounds rough. I like what you're describing. I didn't have to do it, obviously, because we just kind of upgraded cold turkey. But the Python 2.3 split like was so awful for the ecosystem that anything we're going to do to avoid that sort of situation yeah. seems like a good... Well, like what you want thing. is you want to be able to inch your way up as close to the line as you can so that when you flip the switch, everything just kind of keeps working and you have a minimum amount of work to do to get all the goodies from the new system. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So I'm glad they're doing that now. I guess I did it the hard way. <laughs> cool. So that's how our front end works. The back end of Boot Dev is all written in Go. I'm kind of a, a Go developer by trade. And, and Boot Dev is all about training people up on, on back end development in Go. That's why AJ likes you. You're a Go guy. That, yeah, that's how we met. Uh, it was through the, the Go meetup here. So AJ's questions around, like, why are you teaching Python? So we start the way the boot dev curriculum works is we start students in Python. We teach things like, you know, basic syntax, how coding works, object-oriented programming, <laughs> which is something we've been chatting about here, data structures and algorithms, like all the kind of like more abstract things that you would learn in kind of like your first year of CS education. And then we move into like fairly quickly, we move into some more practical stuff that has to do with like what you would actually do in a back-end job. So we use JavaScript uh, to teach like what a backend is. So you learn all about the fetch API and how to interact with a server. That's why we do JavaScript. It's very commonly people will look at the site and it's like, this is a backend site and then see JavaScript and go, oh, it's a place to learn Node. We actually don't do any Node really because right after you're done writing some client code to interact with an API, you're building an API in Go. So it moves pretty quickly through those three languages. Yeah, I guess that's um, one thing that yeah. I'm seeing a lot out there is a lot of the boot camps. I don't know that I'm aware of too many that are teaching Go. Initially, when I was seeing them come out, and I don't know if this is confirmation bias because I'm so heavily involved in the Ruby community or whatever, but a lot of them were teaching Rails. And then I saw a lot more of them start to take a React approach and realize that they didn't want to teach a different backend and front-end language. And so they, they went to Node and Express. So I, I think it's interesting to kind of come at, a come at it from a different approach where... It sounds like you're almost trying to teach them more the, I guess, the concepts and fundamentals of programming as opposed to here's how you spin up a React app as fast as you can humanly do it. I mean, I think your your first take was was also true. Like boot camps, I, I think generally were Rails based, um, and now they seem to be generally Node 
node-based and like full-stack JavaScript. Yeah. One way we differ is that like, I actually, ironic, I, I kind of chose the name boot.dev tongue-in-cheek. It's not really a bootcamp. It's kind of just like an online, it's like an online learning platform. Bootcamps tend to be a little more like cutthroat, skipping fundamentals. Like you mentioned the fact that we were taking a fundamentals first approach. That, that kind of is the idea. But it's also important to point out, we don't do anything front-end or full-stack. It's just back-end development, and it's done through the lens of computer science. That's why we take that fundamentals-first approach. We teach back-end stuff, and we can we have the luxury of not having to teach like JavaScript as the primary language. Like if you're going to teach full-stack development, there's you basically have no choice at, at this point other than to teach JavaScript. It feels like because you need JavaScript on the front end, you might as well teach it on the back end. So the really nice thing about just focusing on training up backend developers is is that we get to do fun things with uh, with Go. I don't know if you guys are Go fans or not. No, you could say I, I, I haven't really gone there. Bit. Yeah, but so yeah, I guess I'd be curious to learn about Go myself. the The nearest competitor or similar language I hear about is Rust. I guess, and the idea with Go and Rust obviously is, and Chuck's making faces at me, and that tells you how much I know. But I think the ideas behind Go and Rust, as I've seen them in the community, is that they're more performant, right? They're a lot better than, you know, a Java or a PHP or maybe even a Node. So could you give us, I guess, the high points on why Go? You know, what is it about that that makes it a popular, I guess, backend language? And maybe is there, is it geared mostly towards a web? I mean, would you use it in a non-web type of, of uh, application, et cetera? Yeah, great questions. I'll try to do it from a Node and JavaScript context because, after all, this is uh, this is JavaScript Jabber. So the last place I worked, last several places actually, were like Node and Go shops. Kind of used both on the back end, and the reason for that is, is, as you pointed out, we used Go for more compute-heavy workloads. So very often, kind of the app team that was doing like front-end development would build their own like REST APIs in Node and kind of be full stack developers in that way. But then at, at a lot of the companies I worked at, there was kind of this big data component of things going on. And there's a lot of compute heavy stuff happening and like kind of ETL, extract, transfer, load, data pipelines. And that's what we used Go for because it was just much more performant on the CPU because Go is a compiled language, right? There's no, there's no interpreter step. We can compile directly to machine code. With that said, it's like from a compute standpoint, it's not quite as efficient as uh, like a Rust or a C or a C++ because it's got this, this runtime that manages, it's a garbage collected language, but it, so it's compute isn't quite on the same order of magnitude as like, as like a Rust or a C, but its memory is much, much lighter weight than the other languages in its like speed class. So things like Java and C Sharp that are often used and on the back end for like enterprise backend, right? In Java, you can save a lot on uh, kind of memory resources by using a lighter weight language like Go. So like to put it in a, in like a, maybe a more, like in a nutshell, we use JavaScript when IO was the bottleneck on the backend. Like if all you're doing is grabbing stuff from the database, you know, making HTTP requests, you don't need a language like Go. I mean, you can use one, there's nothing wrong with it, but you can stick with Node if your developers are JavaScript devs. But we, we, we swapped out our kind of services for Go when we needed, you know, to be more compute efficient. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I, I think for me, the, the reason that I kind of made a face when the comparison was made between Go and Rust is that you, you structure the la- you structure your programs differently from one to the other. And the garbage collection to me is kind of a, a major difference between languages, I guess, at the end, 
at the end of the day, it's memory management one way or the other. It's just the, and, and Rust gives you some, some ways of doing that to help you do it. But yeah, I just think of them in different classes of, of, uh, things because Rust is super close to the metal lightweight. And yeah, Go compiles that way, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't run that way, you know, in the same, in the same arena. But anyway, and I've, I've only played with them a little bit. I haven't done a ton with them. I think it'd be fun to dive in and, and see how far you can take it. But. Yeah, I think Go and Rust get thrown together as competitors often, but in, in practice, I've, I've actually never seen that happen. Other than, like, there's the one famous blog post from Discord where they swapped out a Go server for a Rust server. The reality that I've found is that it's, it's much more often that a C-sharp or a Java monolith is mm-hmm. being migrated to a Go to a go system yeah. again for for memory purposes usually yeah you get you get pr- pretty major performance advantages that way and you get a lot of the stuff that you're used to in a c-sharp or a java than you do in rust one thing that i'm curious about though you know going back to boot.dev is because i'm working on a learning platform too right you go to top end devs and the, the yeah, menu options are you know today. podcast courses workshops meetups you know we're starting to move the needle on that stuff we're putting on some conferences next year so, you yeah. know, we're, we're doing a lot of the same things. And one thing that I'm curious about is that for me, I'm much more focused on here's a technology and how to use it. Right. And so, you know, I kind of lean a little bit more toward the boot camp thinking, I guess. But yeah, you know, so when you're teaching these concepts, these programming concepts, what's your approach to make people make sure people really understand them? Because as I've gotten into like Pluralsight or Egghead or some of the other ones, they just give you a video and that's that's the end of it. And I feel like sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't. And so I was just curious how that works for you and what you're doing over at boot.dev. I love this question. I've done a ton of thinking on this subject. That doesn't mean I have the answers, but I've done a ton of thinking. So I think that video has a very important place in learning to code, but that it's been drastically overused because it's a simple thing to distribute. You make a video course, it's really easy to publish it wherever you want. Um, you don't have to build like any complex platforms or tooling around the video. You can just publish an MP4 or whatever. I love video for certain things. I'm actually going back right now. Just a couple months ago, Boot Dev had no videos on it. It was all text-based, like markdown instructions and a in-browser code editor. And then in between those like interactive courses in the browser, you would you would do projects on your local machine. So you'd follow step-by-step text instructions to like, you know, get VS Code installed and get Go or the Python interpreter up and running. And then you, you know, Mm -hmm. build something, which I love that approach for like the, I would say the 80% of things uh, that you need to learn in programming. But I love video for like high level concepts. So I actually started publishing a few videos about things like how to count in binary numbers or like to visually describe how a binary tree works uh, or something like this, that you don't like, yeah, you need to see the code and like practice with it later, but it's just really important to visually describe how, how some, you know, concept works, uh, you know, maybe visually drawing a stack or a queue or something like that. I think the best learning platforms in 10 years will be the ones that just do like use the best medium for every individual thing they want to teach. Yeah. So I'm just going to pile on here a little bit. Because, yeah, I feel like for the most part, it's not just about here's how you code a thing in Vue or code a thing in React, right? People need to get their hands on it. They need to, you know, nail it down. They need to fiddle with it. And so two approaches that I've seen, and I like them both. One is, is that you provide them a Git repo and they can use whatever editor they want, right? But if I'm going to do that, I'm also going to provide a, 
hey, if you're taking any of our courses, go check out our VS Code course or whatever, right? So you have things set up so you can get the kind of feedback you need from your setup. The other one that I've seen is, oh, I can't remember the name of it now, but it's the in-browser editor that Eric Simons and uh, Albert Pye put together, Stack Blitz. And so people will embed yeah, Stack I've been Blitz talking into about that their actually. app. Yeah. And, you know, I've known, I've known those guys for <laughs> a long time from the Angular community. But, yeah, so you embed it, and then you basically have an interactive setup with your code in it, right? That kind of walks you through it. But, yeah, for the, the videos and stuff, so the, the first course that I'm building, well, I'm building two of them, and one of them's how to stay current on technology, right? And so there's a lot of demo involved, but yeah, you're going to be using stuff that you're already familiar with, you know, Trello and and, and junk like that. For yeah. the other one's a resume and cover letter course, and it's an upsell if you go get my free resume. You can get a copy of my resume at topendevs.com slash resume. You know, you just enter your email address and it'll email you and tell you how to get it. But then, you know, it'll give you some more information if you stay subscribed and it'll encourage you to go get the course. And and I'm not going to try and sell people on the course. I think it's fairly priced and I think it's good content, but go check it out anyway. But the idea is, yeah, on both of those, I'm just walking you through like using Microsoft Word or Apple Pages, right? To build your resume and write your cover letter or to go do internet research, right? And so you already have a lot of the skills you already need in order to to do the job. And so video on its own along with, hey, come download these couple of templates, works great. But yeah, mm-hmm. for, for the code, I just don't think people really understand it until they have spent some time working on it and thinking about it and understanding the concepts behind it. And so a few years ago, I came up with an acronym, and it was Hello World. And basically, it's writing code. The Oh, I can't remember what it was, but it was something with like committing code, right? So you're putting it up on, you're reading code, you're anyway, so you're listening to podcasts and you're you're reading about it in blogs and books, right? And so you mm-hmm. you consume it in different ways because each medium has its own strong suit, right? You know, yeah. if you're reading a book about it, they can go into a ton of depth, right, on on the concepts and show you code examples and the whole nine yards. If you're reading code, like code that people are actually using in production, then you get an idea of what it looks like for somebody to actually use the thing that you're learning. Right. If you're committing code, then you're putting it out there for somebody to give you feedback. If you're writing the code, then you're building up that muscle memory. You know, if you're listening to podcasts, a lot of times we cover things at a high level and we can ask some of the questions that you would ask of the experts and you can pick up some of that stuff. So, so all these things kind of work together as kind of a learning system. And I'm trying to incorporate a lot of that stuff in as I teach people. Yeah. I I think that's a good way to think about it. Like I said, I think I think there's definitely like places where videos make a ton of sense. One of the things that I'm always very concerned about with my videos is skimmability. So I have a when I take video courses, I, I tend to not for mm-hmm. for programming, but sometimes I do. And when I do, I really like ones that are broken up in very small clips, so that I can go right to the clips that I care about. Right, because um, it's really hard to skim like like Free Code Camp. I love them. But they have like 12 hour videos sometimes. And it's just like really, really hard to skim through that content. So I really like the idea of like small clips that are maybe organized in such a way that you can kind of get to the get to the meat that you really care about. Yeah. You brought up another point in there that I think is really interesting and kind of fun to talk about. Uh, And and it, it ties into I think the discussion you guys had, it was just like one or two podcasts back with Kent Dodds. 
mm-hmm. uh, about kind of this idea of an interactive like code in the browser situation versus a like build it on your local machine. And I have several thoughts here. The first is that I don't think you can get away from coding it on your local machine. Like you have to do that at some point. And, and that's why in boot dev, we've taken the approach of like, basically every other thing you do is a is a project on your local machine. That's kind mm-hmm. of a guided project. But I, I do actually really like the in browser editor experience, even though you make some trade offs. So for example, one of the like the big obvious trade off you make when you ask people to write code in the browser is that they're not in the environment that they're typically in, right? Especially, which is especially painful for like more experienced devs. It's mm-hmm. it's actually not painful for new devs. They they kind of like it. They don't have to configure things, uh, you know, before getting started. But it does start to, especially as you get kind of towards the end of in in the case of boot dev, uh, the end of the career path, it starts to get annoying being in the browser. But one of the big advantages of being in the browser is you can do things that you couldn't do otherwise. So for example, um, I can I can check people's, like I can check every step of the way if you're on the right path. So when someone's building a project right. on their local machine, they're kind of verifying themselves, right? They're like writing their own tests, maybe they're running it themselves. The nice thing about breaking things up into tiny lessons in the browser is, oh, I can check your code, tell you if you're doing it right, tell you if you're doing it wrong. And then the other thing that's like, I guess could work on your local machine, but I've, I've not, I don't think anyone's cracked this nut, is like, I love gamified learning. Like I love the, I love progress mm-hmm. bars and achievements and like quests and this kind of stuff. It's like motivation is one of the, if it might be the biggest problem in, in learning. And you can do all of that quite easily in, in like a sandboxed environment in the browser. That's something that's a lot harder to do, you know, when someone's kind of learning on their own, on their own machine. Yep. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it could be interesting if you had, and this is just something that just popped into my head. So, you know, it may be an insane idea, but having a, a VS code plugin for each of your lessons or courses, right? And so then when you pull it in, it, it can check your work, right? And so as you write the the blah, blah, blah test, you know, it has some script that it sticks into your app so that when you spin it up in your browser, it, you know, it says, okay, go ahead and click the button. And then but you can do that, a lot of that with just a Git repo too. So anyway, it, it, there, there are definitely things you can do. But yeah, I agree with you. There, you definitely make those trade-offs. And I'm so addicted to my Emacs key bindings at this point that it hurts, <laughs> it hurts to use stack blitz. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I mean, so that's an interesting idea. I've never thought of the, the VS Code plugin. I have thought about like a CLI tool that would do the things. So yeah. You could have your instructions up in the browser and you'd interact with kind of, you know, the environment via the CLI to test and you'd still get your achievements and crap that's happening over in the browser, but like you get to code in your environment. That seems enticing to me. But again, like, hard so maybe yeah well exorcism.io did that right so you run everything on their exercises through you know through the browser or through the command line sorry and so it'll it'll give you the it'll give you the tests that you you have to make pass you know in javascript or you mm-hmm. know elixir or whatever right but the the issue is is that and it's not that familiarity with the command line is a bad thing but yeah, if you're trying to get new people in, in a lot of cases, they're teaching fundamentals that new people need to understand that then they have to figure out how to get onto the command line and install homebrew and install all the other things that you need for the language. And, and so it requires a level of setup that VS Code just doesn't, right? Because you you can get away with a lot with their language service 
And in some cases, it actually installs the language engine for you. And so, yeah. It's almost like we need different tools for different types of learners. <laughs> yep, I think you nailed that. But yeah, I, uh, I definitely see this space hopefully getting getting much better over the next 10 years. I wish it were a lot better in its current state. It feels like it should be. Yeah, but I mean, we were talking earlier about moving from like the view two way of doing things to composition API or moving from, you know, using class-based hooks to function-based hooks, right, in React. And the reality is that we have to go through the thing that works and it's okay. And I wouldn't even say that they're painful. It's just that we came up with a better way to do it and I think we're going to go through the same thing with uh, teaching code. And so yeah. we'll we'll make it with what we have now. And it, that's fine. It's 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 more than fine. Right. It's it's good that we have something out there that we can use to enhance people's skills. But, yeah, eventually, I think we're going to come up with better and better ways of approaching this stuff. Yeah, totally. So anyways, I, I think like that, uh, you know, we kind of wrapped up like how boot.dev works, what it is. The other thing that we could potentially talk about, if you guys want to, is is this idea of WebAssembly. So one interesting thing about boot dev is on the front end, all the code runs in your browser uh, using WebAssembly uh, and JavaScript. I don't run anything on my servers, which has been really nice when it comes to server costs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can do it really quickly. We're kind of getting toward the end yeah. of our scheduled time. so And I have yeah, a hard yeah, no stop problem. at noon, so... If you want to just hit that for like two or three minutes, then we'll go to picks. Yeah, sounds great. It's yeah, it's just something worth worth mentioning if you're if you're really interested in, in kind of front end development. Python and Go and, and tons of other languages now have the ability to compile to native WebAssembly. Mm-hmm. So a lot of other sites that work in a similar way uh, to Boot Dev will take your code that you write in Go or Python or whatever, ship it to their backend server and run it there, and then give you a result. It's been really fun to instead compile that code to WebAssembly on the back end and give you basically a WASM bundle to run. And it's, uh, yeah, just fantastic for, for performance and, and for dollars in my pocket, because now when someone writes an infinite for loop, I don't have to figure out how to kill that on my server, the, the browser, I just give them a cancel button in the browser. So yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of the last bit of technology, I guess, that we use, uh, you know, in the, in the boot dev architecture that, that might be interesting. Very cool. Yeah, WASM is another area I want to dive into some more sweet thanks guys this is i've had a lot of fun with this all right have you ever wished that you had a group of people that were just as passionate about writing code as you are i know i did i did that for most of my career i'd go to the meetups i try and create other opportunities and it was just really hard right the meetups i got some of that but they were only like once or twice a month and it was just really hard to find that group of people that i connected with and and really wanted to you know talk about code a lot, right? I mean, I love writing code. I think it's the best. And so I've decided to create this community and create it a, a worldwide community that we can all jump in and do it. So we're going to have two workshops every week. One of those or two of those every month are going to be Q&A calls, right, where you can get on, you can ask me or me and another expert questions. Uh, the rest of them are going to be focused on different aspects of career or programming or things like that, right? So it'll go anywhere from like deployments and containers all the way up to managing your 401k and negotiating your benefits package. Well, we'll cover all of it, okay? 
And then we're also going to have meetups every month for your particular technology area. So we have shows about JavaScript, React, Angular, Vue, and so on. We're going to have meetups for all of those things. I'm going to revive the freelancer show. We'll have one about that, right? So you can get started freelancing or continue freelancing if that's where you're at. And I'm working on finding authors who can actually do weekly video tutorials on something for 10 minutes that's related, to, again, to those technology areas so that you can stay current, keep growing. So if you're interested, go to topendevs.com slash sign up and you can get in right now for $39. When we're done, that price is going to go up to $75. And the $39 price gets you access to two calls per week. The The full price at $150, which is going to be $75 over the next few weeks, that price is going to get you access to all of the calls and all of the tutorials and everything else that we put out from Top End Devs along with member pricing for our remote conferences that are coming up next year. So go check it out, topendevs.com slash sign up. Steve, do we want to do picks? Let us do picks for the uninitiated, and we get millions of new listeners every week, I know, so we should clarify. I wish. I mean, um, of course we do. (laughs) Picks are where we get to talk about things that are cool, that have nothing to do with JavaScript and tech, or could have something to do with it. Books, food, games, you name it. So for this week, I will start out. And this is, for regular listeners, know that this is the uh, the high point of every podcast, is my dad jokes of the week. So we'll start out. This is a story. My daughter is uh, studying to become a teacher. She's in her last year of school. And so she was telling me a story the other day where she was doing attendance at the first part of the year. And she comes across this name, and all it says is H-I-J-K-M. And says, I'm sorry, I'm not sure how to pronounce this name. And she spells it out. And a little girl raises her hands in the back and says, that's me. And it's pronounced Noel. For those who can't see, Elaine is doing a face palm. So yes, Noel, get it? There's Noel. So pre-Halloween, we're recording this the day after Halloween. Does anybody know why the black cat was so small? Because it only drank condensed milk. Right. And then for the last one. So I decided that I really should think about becoming a tightrope walker because even the bank says my balance is outstanding. Thank you. Thank you. So with that, those are my outstanding picks. We will move on to Chuck. Chuck, do you have any picks for us? I do. So first of all, I just want to let people know if you want to get a copy of my resume template, this is the resume that's gotten me dozens of contracts, jobs. This is the resume that I help new people format the same way and it's worked for them. So this has probably gotten people hundreds of jobs. You can go get it at topendevs.com slash resume. So I'm just going to let people know if if you want it, go get it. And it's free. You just have to enter your email address. As far as like board game picks. So I'm gearing up to go to TimpCon this weekend. And that's down in Provo for those of you who live in Lane and my neck of the woods. It's at the Utah Valley Convention Center Friday and Saturday. And basically the way these board game conventions work, this one, SaltCon, I think those are the two that I've been, you know, been to or been around. Anyway, the way it works is you show up and you can bring your own games. You can borrow games from the convention. You can buy games there, but they have board games, card games, you know, whatever. I think there was a game from Parks and Rec that people had like recreated and they were all sitting in the back of the room playing on homemade game boards with homemade pieces. You get all kinds of stuff. You get people playing uh, tabletop games like D&D, and there are a handful of those. Um, you also have vendors there, right? So 
you know, people who sell board games, people who rent board games, people who design board games or card games. And so you kind of get all, all types, but I'm going to pick TimpCon again. I'm going to shout out about the board game conferences. They have them all over the place and they are a ton of fun. I, I wound up playing some games with people I had never, ever seen before or since, right? But we all went and grabbed a game and then kind of went, hey, who wants to play this? And so we, we had three or four people get up and come play it. Last year when I went, the other thing that was funny is I walked through and uh, ran into somebody I know, and that was my accountant. So, you know, the guy that does my taxes, he was there. So I didn't know he was going, but he's there. So anyway, when we go, my buddy owns a board game shop or co-owns it. And so he sets up, the conference has like four or five tables with games on it that we've all prepped to teach people. And so I'm picking up a four-hour shift on Friday night, teaching people how to play these games. And one of the games that we've played through that is kind of fun that I'm going to pick, it's called Dice Miner. And this is a game that came out in 2021. And effectively, you have a mountain and you stack all the, you stack, you know, dice on it. And then you take turns pulling the dice off. Or you can, if you pull the beer off of it, you can roll the beer and give it to one of your friends. And then you can take two dice off. And then the next thing you do is you you have magic dice that you can roll or that give you re-rolls. And so then you can re-roll some of your dice to try and score higher. And then you tally everything up. You re-roll the dice in your, uh, uh, what do they call it? Your hoard, basically, of dice. And then you do another round and you do three rounds. So it's pretty simple. Board Game Geek weights it at 1.78, right? So that's little less complicated than what most people kind of clock in at a casual game. My wife and I really enjoyed it. We played it twice. It took us about 20 minutes both times. Two people. You can play it before people. So yeah, it was it was it was a fun game. So I'm going to pick Dice Miner and then I'm just going to I am going to pitch you guys on something real quick and that's uh, Top End Devs membership. So I've kind of changed up the way that I'm doing things initially when I was setting it up. I was thinking, okay, well, I'll have like a Ruby community and a JavaScript community and an Angular community. But I recently joined an entrepreneurship group that did it a little differently, and I'm, I'm really liking it. So what we're going to do instead, and I'm going to kick this off here within the next few weeks, is we're going to have two calls for an hour and a half to two hours every week talking about some topic that's relevant to programmers, right? So it could be careers, it could be like containers, DevOps, etc. And then every month, we're going to have a call for each of the communities that we have, right? So we'll have a call for JavaScript and a call for Ruby and a call for Angular and a call for Vue and a call for React, right? And so then maybe it'll be related to some of the other topics in the general sessions, or it may be something completely different, right? And we're pretty well connected around here to the people that you're going to want to hear from. So we're going to have them come and walk you through stuff. But the other thing is, is that I feel like a lot of the communities out there for programmers don't treat a lot of the other areas that programmers are interested in, like a lot of folks work for companies that provide them with 401k. What in the hell do I do with my 401k? We'll have somebody come and talk about it, right? I want to be an entrepreneur, right? We're going to have somebody come talk about it. We have a freelancer show that I'm going to bring back, so we're going to have monthly calls about that, right? And then I'm I'm going to be building courses and bringing in people to help put out weekly content in the different content areas as well. So that if you want to stay current on Vue.js, right, we'll have somebody who's authoring a 10 minute video on something related to Vue.js every week. 
so that you can go and pick that up and just kind of stay on top of what's going on. So that's that's what I'm imagining at this point. The videos will kind of be in the vein of if you go check out Drifting Ruby, which was patterned after Rails Rails casts way back in the day. But yeah, they had a video every week. I'd like to get it so that it's two videos every week, and then one of them is part of the membership, and the other one's out there free to kind of help market the thing. But anyway, that's what we're putting together. So if there's a topic you want to hear about, let me know. If you want to join up, you can join up. Right now, the price is set at $39. I intend to raise that to $75 for the basic level and the $150 for everything to just get access to everything. And if you do $150, you'll also get member pricing on the remote conferences and other stuff that we're putting on. So anyway, I'm just going to put all that out there. I am still doing like the masterminds and stuff, but that's kind of a tier above that where you get direct and consistent access to me so that I can help you with your career and where you want to go. But yeah, I'm going to pick that. And then I'm also going to pick a book series real quick. I've been listening to a book. The first book is called Keeper of the Lost Cities. And I believe that's also the name of the series. It's written by Shannon Messenger. It is kind of a team level book, right? So you're think like Harry Potter, Percy Jackson. The main protagonist is when it starts as a 12-year-old girl who finds out she has special abilities. You know, sounds pretty familiar. But it's kind of a, it's a little bit lighter fare than like a Harry Potter. But yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it. My kids are enjoying it. So I've been listening to it on Audible. And so I'll put a link to the, those books in the show notes so that you can all find them. And yeah, if you have a, if you if you like kind of not the epic fantasy or the heavy fantasy, you like something that's kind of a, an urban fantasy that's, you know, kind of fun, then I, this is one to pick up. And I think my 13-year-old daughter really likes it because she kind of identifies with that main character, right? Because they're about the same age. So anyway, I think I've given enough without spoiling it. So yeah, those are my picks. All righty. So, Lane, we're finally to you. What do you got for us for picks today? Sweet. Uh, I'll do a couple. So, because you mentioned board games, I actually have a friend from our area. He's down in Vineyard uh, who makes games. And my guess is he'll be there at that conference. He's got a game called Life of the Chameleon. Yeah. Uh, I know he was at SaltCon, but he he has a game called Life of the Chameleon. His name is Jake. It's a great game. Mm -hmm. My wife and I have a copy. Um, So, check that out. It's kind of a Euro it's, I think the category is called Euro Games. Anyways, uh, it's a quick play, about, yeah, 20, 25 minutes. So that's, that'll be one. My next pick, I, I just have to say really quick, I need to go check out Top End Devs. That sounds really interesting. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm definitely going to go check that out after. Uh, well, this is the first time call. I've talked about the way I'm setting that up. So, but yeah. Well, well, that's what sounded interesting. So I'll have to stay tuned, I guess. The other thing that I'm going to pick very selfishly is obviously Boot Dev. Uh, if you're interested mm-hmm. in backend development, in Python, Go, and JavaScript, you can go check that out. Uh, just to make pricing, a, like be aware of pricing, the first three chapters of every course are free. And then after that, uh, you need to be a member and memberships start at 24 bucks a month. So yeah, those are those are my picks. All right. So before we go, if people want to contact you, yell at you, say, hey, you're awesome or give you money, where's the best places to contact or follow you? You can follow me on Twitter or anywhere, I guess, at Wags Lane. That's almost always my my handle, W-A-G-S-L-A-N-E. And then if you want to give me money, you can do that on Boot Dev, but you should probably only do that if you actually want to want to learn the things there. So. Well, don't say that. I mean, I would think you would not have a problem. People just wanted to give you money to give you money. But we'd love to have it. All right. And then I am Wonder95 on Twitter. Follow me if you want to get at least five dad jokes a week, uh, except when I'm on vacation. 
And Chuck, you're on Twitter, right? C Max Wood. Yeah, C Max W. C Max W. Sorry. And Top yeah. End Devs, of course. And then finally, before we go, I'd like to say thank you to the studio audience. Thank you for coming, people. They always add so much to the show. So with that, we will wrap up this episode of JavaScript Jabber. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk at you next time. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.